Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Ksenia, welcome to the School of Unlearning, friend. Hi, Aliza. I guess we were meant to have this conversation over cacao. So here we go. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Um, so yeah, let's start off with just that because cacao is one of my favorite foods. Um, what what comes up when you hear and you like actually make and gift cacao to people? Why is cacao so special to you? Mm, what comes up is warmth and connection to my heart and a big smile breakfast used to bring similar emotions up to me and as I've gone through different phases with food and nourishment lately I'm not into breakfast I haven't been eating breakfast for a long time there's been phases when that changed but generally I just make myself uh, an adaptogen packed beautiful cup of coffee and I don't eat until lunch and cacao is you know, it's known as food of the gods, and it's both food and a beverage that is known to nourish our body on a physical level, and also on an emotional and spiritual metaphysical levels. It really, in my experience, opens up the heart and gets me present to what's important, gets me present to playfulness, and I find it to be such a beautiful companion in creativity. Mm. I resonate with that very much. Um, do you remember when you had your first cup of like ceremonial cacao or you made your first chocolate? Do you remember where you were and what was happening? Oh yeah, I will never forget that. <laughs> I was in Bali, it was 2016. And I had just gotten my green card in the US because I'm from Russia. So it took me some hoops and jumping over them, becoming professional ballet dancer and a samba dancer and learning capoeira to stay in this country so that's a whole other story but once i got my green card i remember i was in a five rhythms class in this studio that's above moto yoga in west village in new york city and i just had this glimpse into what's going to happen when i do get this green card which for me symbolized freedom of being able to not just be in a job and be tied to one place, but be able to travel and have my own business and make these decisions based on what's meant to come through me. And I had this glimpse into how much I would be traveling once that happens. So when I got the green card, I ended up deciding to travel the world. And the original plan was to join an organized trip where we were supposed to travel for, I think 12 months and be in a new digital nomad type of city every month um, and that didn't happen. And I decided to go on my own journey. So I went on a big road trip across the US on my own meeting with friends along the way. I drove from Kansas City to Arizona, to California, New Mexico, stayed at an alpaca farm in New Mexico through Airbnb and then found my way to Bali and if you've been to Bali, you've heard about the yoga barn, which is where a lot of the happenings take place. Uh, all kinds of ecstatic dance and yoga classes, healing practices, amazing 
super powerful breathwork experiences I've also had there. And that's where I experienced my first cacao ceremony. I showed up and there was hundreds of people and they were serving chocolate and we started dancing and we started expressing our voices at some point. And I just felt such a sense of connection to everyone. And I felt in a way unleashed, even though I was there by myself, I didn't know anyone who was around me. I didn't have my community. And I was at a point where I was about three weeks into my trip and I was really craving community. I realized that traveling and having this freedom and adventure is incredible, but missing my community was creating a big void in my heart. And I realized how precious and important it is to be part of a community. So to me, that cacao ceremony felt like it gave me a sense of community, even if it was just for one evening. And then I didn't hear about ceremonial cacao for years until I had it again in New York City in a ceremony that someone was leading. And from there on, it just became, that was, I think that was three or so years ago. And since then, it just became such a big part of my life. And anyone who knows me knows that I go through phases of different obsessions. And cacao definitely has been the, or one of the most long lasting ones where it's just such a beautiful way to connect both with myself and also with others. You know, when anyone visits me at my cabin, I love lighting the fire and sitting under the stars or during the day and making a cup of cacao. And it just, it's this invitation into something sacred and something ancient that's within all of us through this tradition that, you know, has been passed down to us through, as a lot of us know, through the Mayan civilization, but also through a lot of other communities. And, um, you know, we don't know too much of the history because a lot of it was erased, but the things that we do know beautifully are now becoming available. And I know you've been to Guatemala. I've also traveled to Guatemala and I've gotten to sit with some of the elders and it's just having a reemergence in the world that I believe is happening now for a reason at a time where we all are invited to step into remembering, step into our hearts and return to love out of fear, away from fear into love. I love um, your story. It's really, really one of the more interesting stories I've ever seen and heard. Um, we're going to get into where you were born and raised and how you know your life brought you to New York and then what you do now. But I think what you actually just talked about for the last five minutes around cacao is actually, in essence, what what I think of when I think of you and your work, which is um, work centered around community and rituals and a level of consciousness, which is, um, I think, a testament to your story, which we will um, share with the audience soon about how you came to be. But I think there's actually sort of a, uh, I, I can't call it a second coming, but I think there's more of an awareness of rituals and drinks and teas and cacao than there ever has been. Maybe we attribute that to like the news spreading on social media and recipes being shared. But like, I actually think again, you know, we're still in COVID, but I think now that we're more able to be in person, people are really valuing this idea of slowing down and being intentional with what we consume and, and sharing a drink and like having a cacao ceremony or a tea ceremony. Like I've been having tea with friends lately and it's been like the sweetest way to just like come together and, and sip something slowly with someone, you know, like mm. in such a fast paced world and then, which we had, and then it became a fast paced world that was mostly isolated. Now we're kind of coming into this space of just 
intentional rituals, mm. which I think definitely reminds me of makes sense. Yes, and you know, it reminds me, I'm having these flashbacks when I was running Breakfast Criminals, my wellness blog that started with me posting pictures on Instagram of my superfood breakfast and acai bowls. I, at some point, started reaching out to different people that I resonated with on Instagram. And that's before Instagram DMs. I couldn't even message someone. I had to find them on Twitter or find their email through their website. It was like a whole journey just to even connect with someone. Didn't even have a section for DMs back then. Isn't it crazy? Like, I've been on it since 2010. I, yeah. I totally forgot that that wasn't a thing. That it's mm -hmm. truly just a picture posting site. I think there was not even bios, you know, it was just your username, you post pictures. And at first I think there weren't even captions. And then when there were captions, you couldn't edit them. Yeah, it was a whole other world. So in those times, I would reach out to people that I would love to spend time with and offer them to make breakfast. And sometimes they would invite me into their home if they trusted me enough, even though I was a stranger from the internet. And sometimes, you know, I would see that some travel blogger or yoga teacher was traveling to New York City and we would meet up in, in Central Park and I would bring pre-blended acai bowl and then decorated with chocolate, with cacao nibs and um, coconut chips and granola and all the things and chopped up strawberries and serve it in these beautiful heart bowls on a rock in Central Park with the person I just yeah. met. But I feel like I had already been connected to for a long time. And I've created so many connections that way. And so many people have told me that when you reached out to me, I thought you're absolutely crazy, but your breakfast look amazing. So I said, yes, you know, it's there to yeah. lose. And it, it was my way of using food to connect with people, to create a conversation and also to express love. You know, ultimately for me making food for other people, I don't know if you knew this, but my name in Greek actually comes from the word hospitality, Xenia with an X. And I even have been noticing, I love making food for my husband. And when he buys something for himself or he goes out for a meal i feel like i've lost the opportunity to express love and that's what really got me present to the fact that for me making food for people or making a cup of delicious cacao it really is an expression of love and when i have this free expression of it to others i also connect to it within myself too i remember to give myself some love too so that doesn't hurt anybody yeah it never does um I I feel like you and I are more connected than we probably think we are because that's actually like how I started like forming relationships years ago. I didn't know I was doing it. I didn't have the verbiage to say I was doing this, but I would just like make people cookies. I would come in. I used to work at Parsley Health, a medical startup that we also connected with too. And I would just bring people raw chocolate and whatever I had baked and made. And all my colleagues were like, who's this new who's this woman like coming in every day with like trays of gluten-free vegan, like, you know, hopefully delicious food uh, snacks for people. So um, yeah, it's a love language. Um, one of many love languages. So I want to talk a little bit about where life began for you and what life was like for you growing up. Cause I think when I, when I think about unlearning, I, I always have to pause and realize that like before we can unlearn and rethink and, reimagine our beliefs and our constructs, we have to understand the roadmap we were given um, at a young age and how that created us because it did and it still does. 
So I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about you know, where you grew up and what life was like for you. Oof, where do we begin? I was born in Moscow, Russia. My dad used to be a diplomat and my mom was an English teacher, which um, I found out later on very recently in life that a lot of her teaching jobs she took because she wanted to be close to us. So she actually worked in the school where I went to as an English teacher with the intention to be close to her daughters. And I didn't know that. And to me, it really moved me learning that her whole, you know, now she's into real estate and property management. And she's had these passions in her all along, but she chose, she in a way made that sacrifice to be a teacher, to be close to us. And um, when I was two months old, so as soon as I was born, my parents were waiting. Um, we moved to Australia. My dad was sent to Canberra for a five-year contract at the embassy. And I remember growing up in Australia, being surrounded by English-speaking culture, watching American movies and listening to, you know, back then music videos were huge. I guess even 10 years ago was a thing. Like now it's not as big as it used to be, but my parents would make tapes, VHS tapes of music hits, and they would also tape movies. And we had this awesome collection that they ended up bringing back to us when we moved to Russia because the Soviet Union had just recently fallen and it just became Russian Federation. But there still wasn't really much access to the Western world. I didn't really know anyone growing up who had been to the US or even England. And then those opportunities started coming up. And we, um, one of my favorite things was when my dad would go on a trip to London and bring me these uh, pop magazines. I think one of them was called Sugar. Another one was 17. Like girly type of magazines where I could read which lipstick I should use to get the attention of the boy that I was into. And a lot of my life, even after moving to Russia, was very much influenced by everything English speaking. And I always counted down the days until we go on our annual vacation. Usually we would go to Turkey or Egypt, sometimes to England or Spain. And I would count down the days because I couldn't wait to be surrounded by people who speak other languages and people who I can communicate with in English because I even though Russian is such a rich and beautiful language I never felt like I can be fully self-expressed in Russian there's something that just never seemed to fit in so since I was a kid I always knew that I was meant to be somewhere where they speak English I need to be surrounded by yellow school buses and red beer pong cups even though I don't drink beer um it was this craving to be immersed into what I had seen in movies and what seemed somewhat familiar to me because I was surrounded by English language growing up. And then all of a sudden it was taken away once we moved back to Russia. And I remember at that time when we moved back to Russia, you know, there was some moments where I was profoundly sad. There was like a fear of having a boring life was what really somehow was very present to me. And as a very small child, I had a fear of growing up to have a very boring clerk job and having to wear boring clothes. That was like my big fear as a child. And it's funny because my life ended up being the opposite of that. But, you know, at the same time with 
those existential fears, which I have no idea where they came from into such a small child, there was also a profound sense of connection to earth and to nature because every summer we would spend in our country house um, outside of Moscow where we would go mushroom foraging and there was no running water. So we would collect rainwater. And then me as a triple Leo, I would be the one responsible for making fire to heat up the water so we can take showers. And also, you know, because I'm making the fire, I also get the first turn to take a shower. So I get the most water and it never ends on me. So that was the perk of being the firewoman. Um, yeah, I'm just going to pause there and see which direction it might be of value to go next. Um, every time I hear your story, it's uh, it's really remarkable because it speaks of contrast. Like what comes up is contrast, you know, coming, um, you know, being born and born in Moscow and then moving to Australia, which definitely has, you know, like you said, like exposure to the media and to, to videos and to celebrities and to just the modern world. And that's what that was coming about then too, in terms of, you know, music videos. I, and that's interesting too, just a little quick pause. Music videos are not as big as they used to be. And I remember they used to be huge. I like watched them yeah. for like hours on end. And it was, yes. It was and then a new one comes out and your whole life has changed. You see all these new fashions yeah. and, you know, new sets and just like you're taken into a whole new fantasy world that impacts everything about how you show up. That's what it really was for me. And I wonder what, you know, probably social media has replaced that for today's generation. What do you think? I think so. I, I also think social media is shorter snippets. You know, they're not three minute movies that they could be, but they're often, you know, like 10, 15 second things at maximum for some platforms. Um, but it, what's actually interesting to me is like, and so I just I just interviewed someone for the podcast named Luke Burgess, and I mentioned this to you earlier, who wrote the book Wanting, which is all about mimetic desire, and that at a core level, all humans are mimetic, which means we imitate. We're designed to imitate. It's not something to get away from. So we imitate, like, again, like, you see a music video, what someone's wearing, and then you want to wear what they wear. Because you, you know, on some level, you desire to look like them and to be like them. But on a deeper desire, you on a deeper level, you desire to have what you believe they have, which is mm -hmm. liberation or sexuality or confidence or money, things that we can't really know just on the outside. We just see what they're wearing. So it sounds like from your perspective, just because it's so fresh in my mind, this is what I'm seeing and hearing is like your mimetic models were like the people you saw in videos and on the magazines. And, you know, it's it actually is um, really sweet too, to think about the, the mini heartbreak you experienced when you went back to Moscow and you thought, I don't want to have a boring life. I want to have that life I just got a glimpse of. Um, I'm curious, like, what did you learn about? Cause you said you really feared that like you would have a boring job as a clerk or something in some office and you were so young and you're like, I don't know where this came from, but like, what did you learn about life in Moscow? Like what was possible like, what were you told was possible and wasn't possible that you somehow thought, you know, that was a, a big driving fear for you? Oof. Lots of uh, deeply forgotten trauma is coming up as you ask me that. Because, um, you know, on the one hand, there was the weather. During the winter lasts quite a long time. And for about four to five months a year, it gets light. I think around 8 a.m. and it gets dark around four. So by the time I would get home from school, 
And my school was always about an hour commute, taking three different subway trains or two different subway trains, and then a 15-minute walk. It was quite far away. By the time I would get home, it would already be dark. And so that definitely impacted my mood. Um, secondly, just like a real life funny example, I had not been to a supermarket until I was about 11 years old because in Russia, there were no supermarkets. So for me, the experience of walking into a store and being able to, well, I, I'm not counting Australia because I was a very little then I'm talking about more like conscious, uh, age, um, there was no stores where you could walk in and see all of these choices and actually put them in your basket and touch them and shop. It was more like the Soviet structure where you walk into the bakery and the only thing you can buy is bread and baked goods. And you have to ask the old lady who is using like one of those wooden things to calculate how much it is. Um, you would have to ask her and she would be very rude to you. So there was like a lot of that plus on top of that, there's a lot of bureaucracy that I experienced, even the smallest things that you would think should be a human freedom, especially as a child, like, you know, getting your passport or getting your internship approved when I was later in college, which I still was a child. Like I finished college when I was 15. So there was like so much bureaucracy that left me. Um, what is the word that left me making myself small and like, I don't really have a voice and that authority is everything and I can't speak up and I can't ask questions. There's like some of that kind of Soviet structure that was still embedded at the time when I was growing up. And then once I was in high school and in college, I was deeply into hip hop and R&B culture. I was a hip hop dancer. My dream was to be in a hip hop music video. And I started clubbing. I was obsessed with clubbing. I wasn't really much into drinking, but I loved using all of my pocket money for the weekend to pay for the entrance to a club and then dance all night long. And the thing that really impacted many years of my 20s and, and teenagehood leading that was face control. So in Russia, there's a thing named as, I'm hoping it's not the same anymore. I left Russia about 13 years ago and my prayers that kids of my age now don't have to experience that. But when I started going to clubs, there was dress code and face control. So dress code means that you have to look rich and trendy. And if you don't have the money to buy the real stuff, you buy fake stuff and make everything else look good enough to make it look real. And face control is that you legit just have to be attractive to be let in. And I certainly at that time didn't feel that way at all. I was going through acne and I always thought I need to lose weight. So I was still coming into myself and actually, you know, trying to lose weight so that I do pass the face control was what originally led me into the path of learning about nutrition and well-being and ultimately self-acceptance. So, you know, now looking back, of course, it all makes sense. But at the time, you know, imagine being a 16 year old child and being judged by how you're dressed, how much you weigh and what your face looks like constantly. You're just standing there. It's freezing winter. You're standing there freezing your toes off. And there's like this dressed up young guy who just goes and points with his finger and goes, OK, this one goes in. This one goes in. No, your friend can't come in. And um, that definitely stayed with me for a long time. So just coming to the U.S. and noticing that people had such more casual approach to style um, and yeah. that you don't have to constantly wear highest, most uncomfortable heels to be considered 
attractive or stylish um that was a revelation to me and i also want to assert once again like it's really changed since the style and you know acceptance of different styles and the unique ways people express themselves since i've gone back to moscow every year i've really seen it change and become more westernized in moscow but still there's like this expectation from a woman that is very much rooted in the old world and um those are some of the things that I think were kind of building up and impacting my identity there. And then when I came to the U.S., I felt like I had a brand new ground to just create myself as whoever I wanted to be. And ultimately, that identity also became a self-imposed prison. But at the time, that's what I needed to move forward. Hmm. I'm curious when you say that identity became a self-imposed prison, can you kind of flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah, I'm just, you know, detangling this now. It's very, very fresh. But um, I realized that so much of um, so much of my identity was based on trying to check certain boxes, whether they're created by myself of being like this healthy person, being this kind and mindful person, or society imposed boxes of like, being inclusive and nice and all of these different things. And I've just been even, you know, building breakfast criminals, which is the original Instagram account and website and brands that opened up so many doors for me and became this um, peak for me at which all of my love for photography and storytelling and blogging, which I had been doing since I was about 16, it all came together and it was gave me an opportunity to connect to the world or my love for food and interest in wellness and photography and storytelling all kind of crystallized in this one place. And the world actually accepted it and the world celebrated it. And the world opened up doors for me to travel the world and do things I thought I'd never do and work with awesome brands that I have been admiring for many years. And, you know, that's what I'm referencing when I say self-imposed box, because I'm realizing now that me creating that identity of breakfast criminals and my attachment to its success and what people think about it was very much a limitation itself. So now I'm entering this new stage of my self-expression and self-acceptance where I don't need to have a brand or an amazing podcast name to, um, to be accepted, to be recognized. I don't even need to be accepted or recognized because my only job is to follow the divine spark that has been given uniquely to me like it has been to uniquely given to every single one of us and follow that follow what makes me feel alive follow what brings me joy and express that and how it lands with other people is none of my business and whether i get awards for it or not is also none of my business and it also doesn't say anything about me what i noticed is that there was a lot of attachment to these external successes that breakfast criminals had and how much I was telling my story based on those successes, how when I would enter the room, I would put breakfast criminals before anything else that I am in this moment. And that feels like holding on to the past and holding on to the past accomplishments, just like a lot of us hold on to past failures. So that felt so restraining. So now I'm working on or softening into because there's nothing to create. It's more like unraveling and unlearning. I am remembering who I am. I am connecting to my soul 
and I am reminding myself that it's okay to just show up as me. And so the way that that's reflected in the outer world is I've been changing on all of my social media handles and website and podcast to just my name, Senia Brief. And I'm in this stage of just deeply accepting my humanity and who I am in this lifetime instead of chasing creating awesome brands, getting awards and creating this vicious cycle of external validation, telling me who I am instead of sourcing that within myself. Because when I source it within myself, there's absolutely nothing from the outside that can shake me within my business or beyond my business. Um, Wow, number one. Uh, Number two, thank you for sharing that. I feel like this is like in some ways, like when I think of unlearning, I think of unlearning as a coming home. And it really feels like this chapter, you know, what you're doing with um, coming back to your name, your given name and the energy in which you, you live on this planet, what you see, what you notice and how you connect with people, like that's a coming home. And I, what's actually interesting and kind of heartbreaking that I don't think I knew before exactly was, you know, the experience you had when you were going clubbing in Moscow and how, you know, um, face control was a thing, which to me is just mind boggling that that it had a term and that it's so pervasive. I'm sure it happens elsewhere, but it seems to be quite intense there at the time. But that your your sort of that was the impetus for your desire to get healthier and to look um, to look a certain way. And that almost Breakfast Criminals was created in reaction and response to that deep need for belonging and that deep need to to be accepted, whether it be at the club or, you know, by other people. And it did bring you to tremendous places, the platform you created and taught you skills. It gave you life. Um, but now it feels like you're, you're moving in a different direction, more, more inward towards what really matters for you and your experience. Right. Because what you're pointing to is that it really did answer that need in me to be seen. And I also realized that it just became a band-aid for something that it was time to let go of and source from within. So that's what I'm learning now. And it feels so freaking liberating to just show up and share what feels present for me without having to go through my inner boxes of face control and dress code of like, oh, are people going to like this? Are they going to think this is good enough? Are they going to think this is relevant? Is this you know, considering all of the what's happening in the world, am I making sure I am, you know, considered to other people's pain? I think that the highest contribution each one of us makes is by vibrating at the true frequency of who we came here to be. And when we diminish that by trying to fit into boxes, even if those boxes have the best intentions, it really takes something away from us all collectively rising our consciousness and ultimately, like you said, coming home to ourselves. And the more of us remember this truth that you are going to piss some people off when you are fully yourself. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I am just laughing at past versions of myself now because I've created that capacity and I've been shown this lesson is I used to get so triggered in comparison and judgment when I would see certain people who are very loudly, creatively self-expressed. And that comparison, that judgment, those triggers were my mechanisms of trying to feel safe. 
So if I judge them, if I say that they're too much, that means that I can stay small and I don't have to shine the light on the part of me that is ready to be fully expressed. And now that I am developing this capacity to just show up as fully me without hiding behind any labels or brands of my past identities, I am just able with a big smile on my face and heart, see people who are creatively self-expressed and just take them in and appreciate them multidimensionally of who they are. And remember that um, the more of us do that, the more of us remember to do that as well. Even if at times, if it feels like the most uncomfortable thing, ultimately when it's time, we will be shown our way home. It sounds like you um, now can view other people's stories, the media that they create, um, how they show up in the world with more openness and like full acceptance. Whereas before, like to your point, it was a lot of comparison and, and judgment, um, which is amazing. Um, do you have compassion for the Ksenia like five, six years ago who was knee deep in that world of, you know, approval or uh, you mean the me that was two weeks ago <laughs> yes I, I had a yes. massive uh massive medicine journey just a couple of weeks ago um that showed me all of these things that I've been really building the capacity to understand you know I've been studying yoga and meditation for over a decade probably and I've thought that I was this somewhat conscious, you know, spiritually developed human. But in this one single journey, I was shown how much of it was used to continuously just to check the boxes of being good and nice and kind and spiritual, you know, and being service, like um, all of these things. And uh, now that I have seen all of these different programs that I've been living by and running that I thought were in service of something good, um, it's just, I definitely have compassion for myself. And I also know that there was no way to rush it. And what I can do now is yeah. recognize those patterns that have been running my life for many years now and just not identify with them. And the more I just remember to not identify with them and be able to look at them with compassion, the more space there is for me to just be who I am. And it sounds so simple, right? And like, some of the things that I got from the journey, I have been writing in my journal, I've been talking about it in my podcast for years, but just knowledge is nothing without this energetic, full body, embodied, clicking in sense within the lived experience. And so I feel like I'm integrating all of the things that I've been collecting, all of the knowledge I've been collecting. And for sure, there's compassion. And also, you know, I wouldn't change a thing because I was only revealed as much as I could accept and embody at any given moment. Yeah. I think that speaks to, um, I don't know, like a deep sense of grace for your own experience and for other people too. Like we can't, we can't unlearn at 19 what we need to go through at, and then at 31 realize it. And then maybe at 35 feel it you know, like we can't do that. And I think that I, I think a lot about compassion as I think about unlearning, um, because I just think that if, if we're not compassionate or at least curious about how we can like soften towards the self that used to perpetuate drama cycles and check boxes, like we're just going to continue to check more boxes. We're just going to continue to self denigrate and go down that path. And I think that is one of the things that 
people, particularly leaders, people who have influence um, are very susceptible to is, is self-judgment and, you know, self-denigration. And I think that that sort of breaks my heart because I've, I've been there too. And I know that I got nowhere really fast that way. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we can't skip that. Can't skip that step. And yeah. And, and also just, just going through it and I don't, I don't know how else to say it other than just going through it. Like we can't bypass that. And I think when I was 22, I started to meditate. I went to some meditation retreats and I got into that world mainly because of trauma, not because I was trying to be anybody. Um, I was like, you know, dealing with a pretty serious bout of depression at 23, 22, um, via a car accident, a few things that happened that were hard to go, go through. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of was doing it to survive. And then it became a sense of like, oh, there's a story to tell here. And so the more and more I told that story, the more it seemed to inspire people. And it was interesting. I don't know if you've heard this too from people. People are like, oh, you're so inspiring. I love your story. And I'm like, girl, I started this because I was crying in the corner. Like I didn't start this for like likes. I was trying to survive. I was trying to get to a Thursday when it was a Tuesday morning. And so I just had a lot to unpack around how we talk about spiritual growth and how we share our stories and try to do it with as much integrity and honesty as possible. And responsibility really comes to mind too when I think about sharing stories of mental health and spiritual development because there's a deep responsibility I feel in in sharing my story that I do believe needs to be shared, but also like, God, how I do it makes a big fucking difference for me, mm. pardon language, but I, I say things. I, I just feel, I don't know, I'd love to hear what you think about integrity and responsibility when it comes to storytelling around your story, other people's stories, what we see in media and social media. Um, well, around I would love to hear what you're learning on this is. What are some things that you have been learning on how you can tell your story in a way that is an integrity? And what does that mean in your case? Yeah. Um, so I really only post things when I feel like this. And you said before, like feeling called to like, uh, it's like the spark that you feel like you have to honor this sort of like uh, sense of aliveness that you have to honor. And that's sort of where you're gravitating to. And I feel like in the last couple of years, I've particularly been very careful to like only post things that are personal when I have that sense of like, like, yes, like this full body sort of awakening where like, I just, I have a story to tell and I don't know who's going to read it or who's going to share it or not read it, but I have to say it. And I also think a lot about oversharing and not going to detail what I call detail negative. I see a lot of people in the mental health space saying really detailed stories about like their depression and their PTSD. And I think it's very helpful in some perspectives on some websites somewhere for people to understand symptoms and concerns and things to look out for. But I don't need to drag anybody through my darkest day for them to understand that I've been there and it's okay. And I waited through it and you can too. And by the way, here are some resources. I see a lot of people using their trauma and their mental health as a means to, or their story broadly doesn't have to be about trauma as a means to, I don't know if it's get attention or whatever, but I think it actually triggers people. I think it can be very triggering, you know, like if I'm not in a good place and I read someone's like super detailed negative story about like the mental health crisis, like I can't, I, it's like one scroll and all of a sudden I'm in this vortex of their world. And so when I post basically, I'm like, 
A, is it like needing to come out of me too? How can I responsibly do it so that I lead people to a place of like empathy and insight and also responsibility? Like I'm not oversharing, but I'm letting them know that there was an experience that needed to be worked through. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. The one thing I've been learning on that is that however responsible you think you're being, there will be some people who twist your story and think you're either overshared or undershared or you weren't authentic or you were doing it for attention because it just is reflecting their own shadow and whatever, you know, is ready to come to the surface. So I think the most important thing is to follow the spark and share what is meant to come through and do it from a place of truly, you know, what feels alive? What am I meant to share? Which part of my story will be for the highest good of myself and the collective? And until we can do it from that clear space, even, you know, making it a ritual. If you, if I feel myself trying to do something because I'm like, oh, I haven't posted for a long time or people haven't been asking, asking me this, so I need to respond. Anytime it's from this like needy, pushy energy, I don't allow myself to post. So I go back, I either take a few breaths, take a walk outside, or I recalibrate myself in some way where I take responsibility for showing up from a clean place where I can show up and be a clean invitation for whatever it is that I am sharing with people. What they do after with it is absolutely not up to me. So I think it's a, it's an interesting subject and it's, a place where the most important place is to take responsibility for our own state and our intentions and ask ourselves, why am I sharing this? Am I meant to share this? Or is this meant to be, you know, something that stays in my journal and just really connecting, you know, by asking myself, why do I want X amount of podcast downloads? I actually realized that there was still some shadow uh, desire for attention that I was coming to the surface because I was ready to clear it out. And so the more each one of us takes responsibility for our own energy, for our own intentions and do this work within, the less we have to go outside and, you know, make judgments about others or ourselves doing something right and wrong. And uh, that's the only thing we're really responsible for. Yeah. It's a big topic. There's a lot there. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the work you do now, um, moving away from Breakfast Criminals into your space now. Um, Tell us about what you do now. It's really along the lines of what we just talked about, social media and being conscious in social media. And also just your work in rituals and how you are in in a new space these days. Hmm. Yeah, it's all being created as we speak. I just renamed my podcast, my social media accounts, um, my website. Everything has become Ksenia Brief. Breakfastcriminals.com still exists as a resource because there's awesome articles and recipes and wellness lifestyle information that still serves a lot of people. And I'm, I love it. And I think there's a lot of value and play in it. Um, so that still exists. It's like a kid who just went off to college and kind of I have detached it from my identity and it exists on its own, even though I'm still the one running it with some help. And my podcast has become Ksenia Brief Podcast. And originally I started it three years ago with this deep inquiry of how our spiritual life 
and our spiritual practices and rituals impact our success in business life. And the more time went on and the more I unlearned and unraveled, I realized that my idea of our spiritual development and our outer success being these parallel lines just going straight up was such a lie and so unnecessary. And that's one of the steps toward me just renaming my podcast into my name because in me even asking that question of how did your spiritual life impact the success you've had with this business to my guests and myself, it creates the container that is very limited and that has a certain lens of looking at the world where I'm learning that it's so nonlinear, both our outer success and our spiritual development are so nonlinear. And I'm even like not even using those same words much anymore because I've been redefining success so much to me. Success is not the amount of money in my bank account or recognition or awards like it used to be, but it's how at peace can I be in every moment? How present can I be in every conversation? How can I, just play as much as possible and feel the freedom to do so. So as I've been redefining these things for myself, I've been tuning into what I'm meant to do. And right now I know that my biggest, my biggest task is to learn how to human as I've unlearned all the old patterns and ways. And as I've been redefining what's important to me, um, it's just to learn to be human in my body, not in someone else's, not to be like this person or that person or even like past version of myself, but how can I experience as much joy and presence and belonging as possible in this human body and this life? And yes, I still love talking about conscious social media and I have some courses and programs on it because, you know, we all teach what we most have to learn. And the medicine that we usually offer to others is what we need most ourselves. And so while I'm learning how to express my medicine through all of these journeys that I've been sharing with you, I love reminding others of their medicine and empowering them with tools how to do so in the digital world because I just, it brings me so much joy and I've been doing this for a long time and I've been playing in these fields of blogging and photography and storytelling in the virtual realm in so many different mediums and to me, it feels like art. It feels like play. It feels alive. So when I can direct others to let go of all of these boxes that we've gathered around how marketing is done, how writing is done, how business is done, and how to create your social media profile, how to write your bio in a way that people are magnetized to you. Like even looking at some of my older work, I'm like, it's not just about alignment over hustle. Sometimes something will think will feel really aligned and resonant, but that's just what's not meant to be. Like this morning, um, I'm obsessed with devotion. That's the coffee beans we get because they're very freshly picked and roasted. And there's a lot of mold in the coffee industry, as I'm sure you know. And devotion has all these stamps of how fresh it is. And this one was roasted two days ago. And we just received it in the mail yesterday. And I was just like set on making a really fresh cup of coffee with my favorite devotion. And um, in the meantime, we had another coffee that was already opened. Eric picked up like a new kind of coffee that I don't know about. And it, it's been fine. I've been making it for a couple of days, but I was just like, I really want my devotion. It's my familiar place. It's it's so good. 
And I spent so much time this morning trying to calibrate the grinder to devotion from that other coffee. And it wasn't working out. And I was pulling one shot after the other. And it was just, just like too thin. And it wasn't brewing properly. And I ended up wasting so much of it. And um, and then finally, when I calibrated, it didn't even taste as good as I wanted it to, you know. And, you know, part of it, you could say my energy of being irritated and agitated probably went into the taste of that coffee. I do believe in these kind of things. Um, and at the same time, it was such a clear example of what I was just saying. You know, sometimes we think we know what's best for us because it's familiar. We've had it before. We know how to operate it. And that doesn't leave any space for growth and for the unknown. And um, to me, that was the lesson this morning and continues to be lesson in life of like, just get out of the way, get rid of the idea that I know what's best for me because I don't. The only one that knows what's best for me is universe source. And my only job is to get out of the way that I know best for myself or definitely anyone else, which, uh, you know, sometimes still comes up. I'm human. Um, and getting out of the way of that as much as possible to make space for what is meant to come through me for what's for the highest good, even if that means the most discomfort in this very moment, because it all will make sense once I look back and I could actually also be enjoying it in this moment if I just stopped fighting what I think is not right. Yeah, yeah. Well, whether it's Devotion or another brand, like you get to decide what's best for you. You, you know, it's like in the moment you get to enjoy that coffee or not. It's like basically it's a it's actually a really human moment. And it's one that like everyone sort of experiences on some level. Um, and I also want to go back to your comment before you said, like, you're learning now how to human. And I, I want to ask you, you know, or maybe challenge you is like all those chapters where you were, um, you know, creating different ventures and checking boxes and getting a lot of sort of external success. like isn't that also human too? I mean, that's the world we've created, the world that we are seeking, you know? Um, that's, you know, obviously it's very externally driven, but it's also part of the human condition is to have those those avenues that we go down like we can't. For sure, yeah. And I, I look at that version of myself, like I went, when I went through my Instagram and I deleted and archived almost 4,000 posts and I got to see a lot of the the body of work that I had created over the years and remember all of the things that I had done with different brands that I totally forgotten about and I totally would be friends with that girl I love her and I have compassion for her and there's part of me that would want to like push her and be like hey like this is the truth we can move far you know faster but I also know that I can't do that and yes, for sure, I hear what you're saying. I honor all the past versions of me. And um, there's nothing more exciting than the present. And the present feels like a whole new beginning. As you think about life in the present moment for you, and also, you know, because we are products of not only our environment, but also products of, on some level, um, our childhood too. Your, your childhood was rich with moving and um, assimilation to different cultures and also finding your voice in a world that was telling you to be quiet. What is one learning that you actually keep with you that maybe you're a parent or someone influential or your inner self told you at a young age that still remains true for you that you don't have to unlearn that you actually feel like, oh, I knew this when I was eight, but it's still true now. Is there mm. anything that comes to mind? It was such a beautiful encapsulations of my life lessons. Thank you for that. Um, 
And yes, I would say who comes to mind is my grandfather, Viva. His full name was Vitali. We called him Viva, Viva Life. And he was the one who I would go mushroom foraging a lot with. And he once told me that if you, you sing to mushrooms, if you express your voice, they will reveal themselves. And as I've been working with plant medicines, to me, it's constantly having new and new layers of revelations, what he taught me. But ultimately, the lesson is being playful. And when we share our voice and we walk in the world with our throat open, with our heart open and lead with our truth, then we're guided every step of the way, even in moments when it feels like we're totally lost. Because that moment of being lost was there to show that contrast that you were talking about of remembering. How can we remember who we are if we don't experience forgetting and remembering, forgetting and remembering? It's all part of the same journey. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I just love that you had mushroom foraging in your childhood. I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't have anything remotely similar. <laughs> I love that you had that experience on planet Earth as a young, young child. Um, I remember foraging for like gummy bears at my parents uh, in New Jersey, but that was um, I know, right? What a, what a world we both come from. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, we've sort of been loosely talking about this idea of learning and unlearning throughout this conversation. Um, if there's one thing today that you, you could encapsulate, like what's your unlearning today that you're rumbling with your uh, you know sort of trying to rethink or even not and so to unlearn doesn't mean it's it's forgotten or it's gone away or it's never going to happen again it's just a reorientation to a belief or a construct that you're accepting today and working with today i would say it's letting go of the idea that i need to change something about myself to be a contribution for the world it's really stepping into the remembering that exactly the set of experiences that I have, exactly the opportunities I have on my plate right now and everything I'm working on right now, which I, I chose exactly, this is exactly how I live a full life and be a contribution to the world. And there's not like, I don't need to get a PhD in being a social activist because being, you know, Boyd Vardy, one of um, people who has been on my podcast, he talks about how the activism of today is living differently and to me it's really i've always believed that but there was a story on top of it of like wait but i have to like show certain aspects of me and how conscious i am and mindful i am but what if i let go of all of that and i just focus on how i'm actually choosing to live my life and that creates a much more integrated experience and i think that's one of the reasons i chose my name as the name of all my digital channels which I reserve the right to change anytime because I'm always wanting to change my mind. My husband will tell you I change it about 20 times a day on everything. But in this moment, that's what feels true. And that's the only thing I'm responsible for. That's beautiful. And that's a beautiful unlearning uh, for sure. I support you in that fully. I, um, I wanted to ask you if you were to define unlearning to kind of say like what comes up for you when you think about the concept of unlearning, what words or adjectives or definitions might you provide it? Mm. You know, what I 
saw in my journey is like this matrix of different scenarios and roles that we play in life. Some of them were given to us by where we were born and by our life circumstances. Some of them we chose, but it's this idea that our whole life is basically fulfilling all of these different scenarios. And to me, unlearning is what happens when we remember that this is not who we are, like my role, my job, my name. Ultimately, this is not who I am. These are just games and roles that I'm temporarily playing. And when I'm able to take that step back and observe all of the scenarios and ways that I've chosen to live my life and express myself, there's just a lot more compassion that arises. And to me, that's the ultimate unlearning is that I am pure potential and I can be anything that I choose to in the world and might as well enjoy it and play with it and have fun with it instead of ending up a prisoner to all of these scenarios that we're so busy uh, running. You know, it was a funny example that I received as a download that being a human and running all of these scenarios and fulfilling them is a full-time job. And we get so busy running it, we start working over time that we'll leave absolutely no space to be in the unknown, to be in that playfulness of who we came here to be, experiencing that full dimensionality of a soul in a human body. And um, that's the kind of unlearning that feels present for me that I would like to not unlearn. <laughs> nice. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, you were talking about play and this idea of like, we spend so much time chasing, you know, putting on this costume, doing this. I use the word costume because that's what came to mind. I love that. You know, I talk a lot about play in my work as a conscious leadership coach. And a lot of people think that play means like, you know, get leaders in a room and get like a ball and actually play games and icebreakers. I'm like, that's not, yes, cool. But play to me is a more conscious exploration of the personas that we play, that we put on. And examining like which personas we put on because we're so scared we're trying to belong. Those are generally unconscious, like reactive. And then which personas are we playing and putting on? Cause like we know we need to use that energy of that character to get through and to help the, the greater good. So that's a more conscious play with a persona. So like, you know, I, I think it's like one of my favorite mentors in this field is Diana Chapman. And she wrote the book, 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership, which is part of my textbook for what I use. But she said recently, she was on the Tim Ferriss podcast and she said, you know, like she was talking about the evolution in her relationship of personas with her husband. And she's like, we wake up and we're like, oh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a wife today. What kind of wife should I be today? Like, oh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a really gracious wife instead of a snarky wife. I'm gonna be that because I know that we need to get through this day together. And for just this, this, this idea of like, I get to put on the persona that will help the greater good. I get to do that consciously, and that's actually playful. Mm. And if you can talk about that with your partner, your friends, your community, have that shared language, or even just do it and live it, it does bring a new level of awareness on how we show up and how we get to engage with people around us. So that this kind of came to mind as you were closing with this idea of play is this, mm -hmm. how, how it can actually work in the world. But. Yes, yes, what comes up with that also is this idea that um, a pattern that I noticed in myself is there's this 
when I feel lost and I am not connected to source within and to my soul, there's this desire to outsource and have someone tell me how I'm meant to be and how I should show up uh, to get somewhere or, you know, whatever that is. And what I'm realizing is that I am the one who gets to choose who I get to be. And the being uh, and the life force, it just is. And I get to choose the unique expression that it gets to be through me. And if I don't consciously choose, it's very likely that some harmful patterns will hijack my day. Complaining, avoiding, resentment, whatever they are. So might as well choose something like you said, graceful and playful. And it, it sounds so simple, but choosing how you want to be and show up in the world makes such a difference, doesn't it? It's and it's such a difference, and it's honestly so it's so challenging for so many people because it's a new concept. It requires incredible awareness. It requires skills, you know, to to abandon a persona that was rooted in being right or rooted in being the loudest voice in the room. Requires the skill of being humble, which is a skill. It's not a characteristic per se. You have to practice that. It requires so many skills, and so it's like it's so easy. And this is why we don't do it because it actually has like layers of difficulty. And, um, you know, I, I, I love that we get the choice though. I love your language. You said we get to choose. And I think that's a big sort of mantra for me too in my life is we get to choose mm -hmm. how we, how we show up. That's really what happens with how we show up. So. Yeah. And it can feel really overwhelming from my experience to, realize that life force could be anything it's infinite number of possibilities and potentials and it's like this human overwhelm of wait but where do i even start what do i even do but the real lesson is that it's only hard when we try to be more than human and we'll remember that it's just okay put your hands on your body take a deep breath and it's all in that one breath it's all right there one breath away and also that we didn't come here for easy. We came here for the evolution that our soul is meant to experience. And so sometimes it will feel like it's easy. Sometimes it will feel like it's super challenging and uncomfortable. Sometimes it will feel playful. But how can we maintain that breath and that presence through it all and remember that it all is valid part of our journey? Mm -hmm. I've been asked, wanting to ask you this question for like probably 20 minutes now because we've been talking about the soul, evolution of the soul and how it shows up in the human form. Um, have you watched Pixar's movie Soul, which came out like a year ago? Yes, I am obsessed with it. I think it's so brilliant and I'm so happy that there is pop culture media that is so freaking deep and playful at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been like thinking about this that this whole time i'm just like she has to have seen the movie i'm pretty sure she <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i loved um, it so if you're listening and you haven't seen it my friends go watch soul by pixar i think it's a really yes. beautiful encapsulation and it also points to a bigger thing which you've been alluding to which is you know we aren't our job we aren't um the role that we take we are we are here to experience uh, all these really cool moments that are part of the human condition that we often bypass so um yeah i love that um, so that's it on my end, friend. I mean, I think we could talk for hours about lots of different things, but I want to yes. respect your time and allow you to go back to the woods and your medicine and cacao. Um, 
but thank you for coming on the School of Unlearning. And um, can you let us know where people can follow you and how they can stay in touch with you and your work? Mm. Yes, I could talk to you forever. There's so many powerful plants and seeds that we planted. Um, perhaps we continue it on my podcast. How does that sound? Yeah, I'd love to. So my podcast is definitely a good place to connect. KseniaBrief.com. Ksenia spelled K-S-E-N-I-A. And um, hopefully soon, I'm working on it. All of the social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube will be Ksenia Brief as well. So you can find some of the podcast episodes on YouTube as well, as well as some of my scenes of making cacao in my cabin in the woods and chasing deer and remembering who I am while looking at the trees and remembering that I'm one of them too. For sure. Always one of them. Um, well, I hope on my next trip upstate, um, I find you in the woods and we have a bonfire with cacao and yes, please. talk about more, more Pixar movies. Um, thank you, my friend. Hey friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.